happy Easter, folks. One of the most bizarre realities of this virus is not that our church is closed uh, this Easter Sunday, but that every church is closed this Easter Sunday. Closed has been one of the most hardest lang words in the English language. This week, my family, we booked to go away for a couple of days and trying to explain to my seven-year-old that uh, this trip that she's been looking forward to for the last two months can happen because the hotel's closed and we can't go. It, it's hard. Or, or I think of an 11-year-old who's trying out for a sports team and you and your dad, you go out and you buy the new kit, your new boots and new gear and all the rest of it and you head down, you practice and you train. But it turns out there's so many kids who are trying to make the team and, uh, that they need two teams but they don't have, they haven't planned, they don't have the resources for two teams. And so there's going to have to be a cut and you don't make it. And as an 11-year-old, you're told oh, the door's been closed. Maybe next year. But it's hard this year. When you get to your late teens, early 20s, 30s, and you're thinking about the dream person you want to marry and who you want to be with and who wants to be with you the way you want to be with them. And the door closes and the door closes and another door and another door and another door. And that's hard. Your mid-career, say mid-40s, and you step back, you look at your life and your career and say, okay, what do I want to accomplish in the last 20 years that I've left in my professional career? And you start thinking it through and say, okay, am I going to stick with the firm that I'm at or, and give it my best shot? Or, and then you work the nights, the long hours, the overtime and all the rest of it, and the days off and five years go, you're 50, and they pass right over you for the promotion. And you don't make it and the door closes on that dream career that you thought you'd have. Or maybe all the doors are open and the relationships clicked and you make the teams. And then somewhere along the lines, the doctor says, it's cancer. And then all the doors close in at once. Or worst of all, you make it. You make it through your career, the dream relationship, every team and every health. And you go through it all. But you do it all without Jesus. And you die. And you're standing at heaven's door. And you go up to the gates and you say, Lord, open the gates onto me. And they'll say, truly, I say to you. I never knew you. And the doors are closed to heaven. It's a heartbreaking word in this life and the next. And I want to declare loud and clear this morning that the meaning of Easter is that God is in the business of clearing this world of heartbreak. The, the meaning of an empty tomb and the opening of a closed tomb is that God has begun a campaign with Jesus Christ to open a door of hope to people who trust in him. The veil has been torn. Access to God has been granted to any who would come. Salvation is freely given, not earned because of what Christ has done. Romans 10 says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he raise them from the dead you will be saved everything that we hope and believe rests on today easter sunday resurrection sunday and all of our hope rests on him that christ is alive our savior is alive to forgive us our redeemer is alive to restore us our priest is alive to intercede for us our king is mighty to do these things long live the king happy easter folks because if it's not for the resurrection. Christianity is no different than all the other religions and creeds and philosophies of this world. Our hope is based and anchored in the risen, living, reigning Jesus who conquered sin and death. If we don't have that, then according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we're believing a lie. We're believing in vain and all our sin is still intact. We haven't been cleansed. And if God is there, then we stand condemned that's the difference that christ risen and christ not risen makes
the fact that we have eyewitnesses accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There, there's three different credentials that we have that set him apart as unique. Number one, it's his impact on history, the kind of influence and footprints that, that he left. Many people have come and challenged and changed the course of history and, and brought technology and medical advances, but no one did it the way Jesus did it. He's got a unique impact on history. His second credential that sets him apart from everyone else is fulfilled prophecy. Hundreds of predictions made in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before they were ever fulfilled, before Christ was even born, they were made. Third credential, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These three credentials set him apart from everyone else. So forget the eyewitnesses, forget what have been written about him. These things set him apart. So many religions in the world today, every religion except four, have their writings and all the rest, but four are based on a person. Those four are Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. They're the only four religions in the world that are based on a person more so than, than just writings. Of these four, only one claims that the person who is founded on is still alive. And that's Christianity, the resurrected Christ. And this is how Luke closes out the final chapter of his book. Let's read from chapter 24. Very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, Luke tells us that these ladies went early. Well, how early did they go? Well, very early, about the fourth watch of the night, which is about between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These women couldn't sleep. Uh, you got to, they probably tossed and turned. I imagine all the disciples did that night. Every noise, they're, they're awake and all everything that's going on that's transpired the week before. And a wee bit like our own culture, the ancient cultures would have had a habit of visiting the tombs and the graves of loved ones, whether it's friends or family. The Jews in particular had an interesting custom that they only did it for the first three days. They had, um, well, some did it superstitiously, but there was a belief that the spirit of the departed hovered over the, groom, uh, over the tomb for three days. But by the fourth day, since the body had now really begun to decompose in the Middle Eastern heat, the spirit of the person left. That's the legend, the superstition. These women then had come on the first day of the week because they couldn't come on the Saturday. They couldn't come because it was the Sabbath. It was against the law. They were unable to anoint the, the, the body of Jesus properly after his death then when he was placed in a tomb. And so they wanted to do him the courtesy of giving him a proper burial to make it right because they'd been unable to do it after he'd been taken from the cross. They wanted to come do it as quickly as possible. So they come very early on the Sunday morning. But notice that they're also coming with spices. Why? Very important fundamental reason. They're not expecting to see Jesus alive. They, they don't come expecting to find an empty tomb. They don't expect to find Jesus alive. They're not expecting to see this. And this helps prove the resurrection because the people who proclaim it weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for it. It wasn't on their radar when they went to the tomb that morning. They're looking for a corpse. They're looking for a dead body to anoint it with spices. And so they came. Verse 2. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, we're told by other gospel writers that they didn't know what they were going to do once they got to the tomb. There's a stone across the way, the opening. It weighs a couple of tons. 
There's a, a few women aren't going to be able to budget. They're going to have to push her up out of its groove that it rests in. They're not going to be able to do that. There's guards posted. What are they going to do about the guards? How are they going to get past them? What What are the logistics of this? How are they going to do it? I suppose what's interesting is that love doesn't really analyze those kinds of issues. Love just sets out, uh, I've got to get to the tomb, I've got to get to Jesus, I've got to get to the body, I've got to try. I've got to be there, I've got to do something. They're not thinking about the logistics. And yet the logistics have been taken care of. God has gone before them. But it's not what they expect. Verse 4. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared in them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. When the men asked, what are you looking, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. If you ever heard of angel sightings i don't know if anyone's ever told you about their personal experiences about an angel maybe not i've had a couple of people down through the years uh, tell me that an angel has helped them change a tire on the m2 or moved a car out of the way miraculously to this prevent an accident i don't know maybe northern irish angels are really interested in car safety it seems to be all about roads and cars to be honest, when someone's telling me these stories, I look them in the eye, I, I listen, but I'm looking in the eyes to see if the eyes are dilated a wee bit, you know, or see if there's any signs for early onset dementia. I don't discount angelic interventions. I am skeptical of angel sightings. Uh, it's kind of like Elvis sightings or Bigfoot sightings, you know, it's like, all right, okay, sure, God bless, <laughs> see you later. But of course, what we're reading here is true. This happened, and by the way, this is why you have to be careful because you don't know. You don't know this guy could have actually been the witness of an angelic tire change. Could have had a load of cheese pizza the night before and that could have accounted for what he saw, but maybe he did see it. But even more than that, we need to, how we treat people should be important to us because Hebrews 13 tells us brotherly love should continue and don't forget to entertain strangers because some have actually entertained angels unwittingly without knowing it unawares so if you see someone you should be nice to them keep your distance but don't be saying oh well look, they don't look like an angel to me their the clothes aren't shiny enough that's not the angelic fashion these days like you just don't know and these angels have come to the tomb with a powerful message in scripture it's one word egerte it's not he is risen egerte it's one word Egerthe, he has been raised, a single word that tells a total difference, one of the most important words in the entire Bible. The most miraculous thing captured in a single Greek word, Egerthe, he has been raised. And then the angels call them out. They say, you remember? Remember what he told you in Galilee, that this had to happen? Here's why it's so important to keep preparing these messages as we come at the Easter as we're up in the lockdown. We need to keep feeding ourselves the word of God, because in these ladies we see what happens when we forget the word of God. They have forgotten what Jesus had promised. And because they've forgotten what Jesus had promised, because they've forgotten about what he had said, when something weird happened, they're perplexed, they're worried, they're upset. And then somebody reminds them of Jesus' words and they're not afraid anymore. They're not upset anymore. They're not confused anymore. Oh, that's right. He did say that. 
Verse 9, so they rushed back to the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else. So Jesus is not there, but there's other followers there telling them what happened. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Now keep in mind we're deal- well, who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the apostles. We're dealing with the men who've walked with Jesus, who've talked with Jesus, who've spent three and a half years with Jesus. They've heard him predict his own death. They've heard him talk about resurrection. They've heard him and seen him do miracles. And yet when all these things happen, they're perplexed and they don't believe it. These women came, saw the empty tomb, saw the angels. They come and testified to their city. Guys, it's like, you're making this up, one. And again, this is proof of the resurrection. It's not a disproof of the resurrection. The apostles actually were predisposed to believe that Jesus was not alive. They had to be convinced. They had to see him themselves. Now, why did what the woman say seem to be like idle tales to them? Well, again, they didn't expect it, number one. But number two, I hate to say this, have to be honest, the women weren't trusted. According to Jewish law, a woman's testimony wasn't valid in a court of law. It sounds horrible, but down through the early stages of church history, people dismissed the resurrection as simply as, we well, just can't trust what a woman would say. That It doesn't count. The skeptics that I have read about the resurrection, though, will never deny an empty tomb. Those who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, they, they, they don't believe. They have no problem no believing that the tomb is empty. It's, it's how they come about explaining it, though. And how they do that can be quite fascinating sometimes. Some people will say, look, the disciples stole the body. Now, if that was the case, here's how my conversation with that person might go. Say, well, based on historical records that we have of the disciples, they're in no mood to move a stone. They're in no mood to tackle the Roman guards between 10 and 16 armed men who would be sworn to protect the tomb. Certainly not to kill themselves. They wouldn't do that for what they know to be a lie. So I doubt that. We know they're in no mood to steal a body. They're locked in the upper room. Peter has denied. They all fled the scene. So I'd say according to the historical record, it doesn't fit that explanation for the empty tomb. You have to try something else. Well, okay, if it wasn't the disciples, maybe it was the Jews that stole the body. Well, that wouldn't make any sense either. If the Jews stole the body, because once the early church began spreading the message, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Then all the Jews that stole the body, all they had to do was produce the body. He goes, well, here you go. Nope, sorry, here he is. We took it. Here he is, he's dead. So, so theory number three that they might come out and say, well, it's the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb and there's a lot of tombs in Jerusalem. There's a lot... It's early in the morning, maybe the women are a wee bit groggy, they're, they're still teary, they're still emotional, they can't tell one tomb from the other. They, so they just went to the wrong tomb. Well, if that's the case then, okay, the woman went to the wrong tomb, Peter and John went to the wrong tomb, the other disciples go to the wrong tomb, the Sanhedrin go to the wrong tomb, the Roman guards go to the wrong tomb, the angels go to the wrong tomb. Everybody goes to the wrong tomb seems to not really make sense. And besides, that's easy to fix as well because then you find the right tomb. So at some point, another guy's going to come and say, guys, what are you doing? That's my tomb. That's for my family members. What? Get out. Or go to see Joseph Farmathia. He bought the tomb. He knows where his tomb is. Surely he'd be able to put it right. So that doesn't work. So if it wasn't the disciples, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the wrong location. Here's the popular one, the swoon theory. And I know you've heard about this. The swoon theory says that Jesus was on the cross, but he didn't really die. He just came really, really close and it looked like he was dead, but he wasn't really. 
So they'll take a barely living Jesus who looked like he was dead, but still slightly alive. They put him in a tomb. They wrap the spices and the burial clothes around him and the dampness of the tomb served to revive his body and he walked out. Now, if someone really believes that, you have to doubt their ability to think logically. Because you're telling me that some guy who faced a Roman scourge had spikes through his wrists and feet, a spear in through his ribs up into his heart, who's had a crown thorn pressed into his head. And okay, first of all, he survived that. But okay, he survived that. And without the medical attention for a couple of days in a damp tomb, that's going to help him recover, not kill him. You think it's going to actually improve his condition being left in a stone tomb? And then on top of that, he's going to get better, unbandage himself, move a two-ton two stone away and then take a walk and convince people he's doing better for it. You see how ridiculous it gets. Verse 12. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the tomb, uh, the empty linen wrappings, and he went home again, wondering what had happened. Now, that's Luke's account. Luke doesn't tell us what John tells us. John tells us that Peter and John went, and John would include this, that they raced to the tomb and John beats Peter. John tells us that he beats Peter. You know, we both ran, but, you know, I won. You know, Resurrection Marathon, number one. Peter second. But I think, look, the historian doesn't want to offend the early church leader. And so he just leaves that detail out. It's not important to the story. And this looks closing scene at the tomb. And now Mr. Storing deals with a wonderful interaction that gives us some special insight to the first Easter Sunday. Verse 13. The same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognising him. They had been talking about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, about Judas Iscariot, the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion. They're talking about all these things. They're trying to process it. They're trying to factor it all in and put it all together. I've discovered that when people are in grief, they need a chance to vent. They need to just talk it out and talk it through. And they'll almost say anything, but they just kind of need to get it out. You kind of have to have be a wee bit unshockable when you're dealing with people who have lost a really close loved one and they're grieving. You're just with them and they'll say things and say, oh, that sounds terrible. It says, no, look, you're just, you have to process this. It's the ministry of just presence, the ministry of just being there with people. And so this is what happens. They're talking about it. And again, they're not expecting a resurrection. They're not expecting what's about to happen. And I just love this picture. I love it because Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am as well. So here you've got two people in Jesus' name talking about the things that's most important. And Jesus just walks up to them. Verse 17, Jesus says, what are you talking about so intently as to as you walk along? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. One of them, Cleopas, replied, Now, before I tell you what Cleopas said, according to church tradition, Cleopas was Jesus' uncle. He was his dad's brother. He was Joseph's he was Joseph's brother. No idea if that's true or not. It's a church tradition. It's a long standing tradition that he was the carpenter's brother. And it's also a tradition that the other man walking with Cleopas is none other than Luke himself who wrote this apostle. Again, no way of actually verifying this. It's just an old legend, church tradition with no idea other than one of them is called Cleopas. 
He says, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened here the last few days. Verse 19, I love this. What things? Jesus asked. Now, there's so many theories as to why they didn't recognise Jesus. I'm not going to tell you any of them. I'm interested in a different question. I'm not interested in how they didn't know. I want to know why they didn't know. Because why were they not allowed to recognise Jesus when the woman at the tomb were? Number one, I think God wants to keep them honest. Hey, why are you guys all bummed out? Well, if they know it's Jesus, then they never would have really answered the way that they did. Are you the only guy who hasn't heard this? Haven't you heard what's been going on recently? They never would have said that if, if they had known it was Jesus. He wants them to open up. He wants them to tell them what they're thinking. He wants to read their hearts. He's interested in that. He's interested in how we talk about God in our conversation about him. Don't do it now, but after this, look up Malachi chapter 3. It says, Those who spoke about the Lord often, the Lord inclined and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him about them. Beautiful, beautiful passage about how God is interested in what we think about him and how we talk to others about him. He listens to that. He pays attention to that. So he comes up and he walks alongside these guys and he sort of forces their honesty at the point by not revealing who he is. The second reason, I think, and perhaps the more important reason is that Jesus doesn't want to be recognised by sight anymore. Why? Because he's going to go. He's about to ascend. He's going to, he wants them to get used to by being revealed, not by sight, but by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's going to reveal scripture to them. He's going to talk them through all those things. And he wants them to recognise him by the word of God. And now watch this. It's very powerful. It's very relevant to where we are. So he draws out, and I love the humour here. Oh, what things? Oh, really? Tell me more about what's happened over the last couple of days. Verse 19, the things that happened to Jesus, the man of Nazareth. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, to crucify him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Notice they're speaking in the past tense. They refer to Jesus not in the present tense. They don't think he that because they don't think he's alive they think he's dead so everything's past tense he was a prophet he was a mighty teacher we had hoped he was the messiah do you understand that all these expectations they had of who jesus was going to be why they were following him was everything they're going through is because they feel that god's let them down they feel that jesus has let them down they wanted a glorious king, but they got a crucified king. They wanted a roaring lion of Judah. They got a gentle lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're voicing this. They're trying to process it. That God isn't quite who they thought he would be. But listen to what they say next to Jesus. Verse 22. Some of the women from a group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea and sure enough, his body was gone just as the woman had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? So first of all, he begins with this rebuke, oh foolish ones. Now, I don't believe the, tomb, uh, the, the tone was, oh, you're so stupid, you idiots. I think it was like, oh guys, come on, you dum-dums. Really? You still don't get it? Oh, they'd cringed to some of the old um, 
they, they claimed that some of the Old Testament prophecies about a coming king, but they had ignored the prophecies about what kind of king this coming king would be, what kind of kingdom he would bring with him. Sounds familiar though, doesn't it? I know a lot of Christians who are slow and hard to believe all that scripture will say about God. There's some things that they like, there's certain promises that they hold on to, but they kind of pick and choose and they kind of make God then in their own image. They'll believe this, but they'll not necessarily believe what God says about divorce or those not, they'll not take on board what he says about purity. They'll jump on promises of grace, but they'll forget about personal holiness. They'll talk about freedom, but they'll forget about testimony. I wonder if you believe everything that God has said and spoken, or do you have what can be called a Dalmatian theology? A Dalmatian theology is a theology that says, yeah, the Bible is inspired in spots. Oh, that spot? Yeah, I like that spot. That's the inerrant word of God. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, this, but you can't always take it seriously. You can't take it always so literally. And if you have a Dalmatian theology, you're going to live like a dog. You won't have stability. You won't have security. It takes away the stability of a person because he doesn't really know from one day to the next if he truly believes the scriptures or if he's kind of on side with it or not. So ask yourself, is what I believe about this book the same thing that Jesus told me to believe about this book? Because if I keep on saying, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Jesus follower, but I'm not actually believing everything that he told me. There's a discrepancy there. There's a issue there. There's a Dalmatian theology there. Verse 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I wish I had that sermon. I wish I had a copy of that. That would have been amazing. By this time, they were nearing a mess. And the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if they were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. I'll be really quick about this, but what this tells me is that the Lord doesn't force himself on anyone. He waits to be invited. He wants to be invited in. He wants to be invited to reveal more. He acts like he's maybe going to keep going, but if you don't invite him, he will move on. If you constrain him and go, Lord, just stay a wee bit longer, hang out a wee bit longer, abide a wee bit longer, his response would be, I'd love to. I thought you'd never ask. And so he went home with them. Verse 30, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Right. I really want to get this, okay? You need to get this. Do you know what they're saying? They're not saying, hey, then our hearts burn with us as we looked at him. He's not saying, then our hearts burn whenever we didn't know who he was. Or then our hearts burn whenever we spoke to him. No, the real burning of the heart came when they stopped talking and listened to him talk. As they listened to him. He didn't tell them anything they didn't already know, though. Sure they didn't. They'd heard these Old Testament scriptures before. They've been growing up all their lives as Jewish men understanding what was said. They're familiar things. But there was a new application of these old truths. They grew up on this stuff. They heard it and they were like, oh man, you need a new material here. We've heard this before. We've been taught this before. They didn't do that. Though even though they'd heard it before, they'd never heard it like this before. Our hearts burned as they explained the scriptures to us. That was real heartburn. May God give you heartburn this Easter. 
May he give us all spiritual heartburn when we hear him speak. Some of us need a good case of heartburn in our lives. Some of us are looking for new experiences and new revelations from God. What we really need is not a new revelation, but a new application of the old revelation. God, through Jeremiah, said, stand in the way and see. Ask for the old paths wherein is the right way and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. Go back to the old way, the old truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The scripture, the Bible, get that. Get a fresh application of the old revelation. That's what gives you heartburn. That's what makes your heart burn fire for God. Verse 33, within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who gathered with them and said, the Lord has really risen. He's appeared to Peter. You better believe these guys made their way back to Jerusalem. But that's what a heart on fire will do. They'll hurry back to where God is at work. Verse 35, then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me and make sure I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies. As you see that I do. And he spoke and he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I love that verse. I love verse 45. Verse 45 is a prayer that I've started to pray as often as I can. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may comprehend the scriptures. It's a good prayer to pray. It's similar to what David said in Psalm 119. Open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. While in lockdown, can I encourage you to pray those verses too? Verse 50. Then Jesus led them to Bethany. And lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. When Jesus reveals himself to you, he'll set your heart on fire. And when Jesus sets your heart ablaze, you know what happens? You worship I'm convinced that one of the reasons people don't engage in our worship service, and by engage I mean not just attending, but I actually mean becoming part of it, being included in in what's going on, not just looking around and sort of wondering what's happening, but what people need is, is they need heartburn, they need their heart on fire for God. They need the Lord to reveal himself to them so that their heart is on fire. And even if you've walked with the Lord for years, yes, it can be a controlled burn, but it should be a furnace. And when your heart's on fire, you are a worshipper. Nobody has to come and say, look, come on, come on, let's go worship. You're doing it. First chord, I'm there. I'm singing. I'm praising God. I'm I'm talking to God. Lord, don't go any further. Stay. Abide with me more. Keep staying with me. Tell me more about your word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel of Luke for us. It's been a long journey as we've traveled through uh, so many different chapters. 
penned by the first century historian who sought to give us the facts, got his sources right, and gave us an orderly account according to your spirit. Lord, set our hearts aflame this Easter. Reveal yourself to us as you have in your word tonight, uh, today. So by witness, Lord, by your spirit in our hearts, set our hearts on fire that we may truly be not just churchgoers, but Christ worshippers. And in his name we pray. Amen. Folks, I hope you have a good Easter. Um, this will be the last video that I put up for a, a week or so. Um, I'm, I'm going to have a well-earned break now. I'm going to take a couple of days off. I'm going to get into the garden and try and do a few, bit, a few bits and pieces there. Uh, but just, folks, stay safe. Uh, the elders will, will, will have different uh, devotional material up on the Facebook page and we'll try and share it out as best as we can, as often as we can. Uh, so just because I'm not filming anything doesn't mean that the church aren't going to be putting the material out there. So be, just be ready for that and be checking that. Um, be in touch, folks. Um, if you need anything, we are here. The church is here for you. Reach out to myself, to some of the elders, the deacons. We are more than happy to, to, to help you as best as we can. We're not exactly doing lot, an awful lot of anything else at the minute. So we would love to help you. It would be our privilege to get alongside you. But folks, stay safe and please stay inside. I know the weather's great, but don't be tempted. Um, I think it's one of the most callous things to say, well, it doesn't affect me. What what what, what that says is, well, I'm okay. So I don't care if you, other people get sick. I don't care if other people are, are, are going to ill. It's one of the most selfish things that you can do. So please keep listening to the rules the regulations the government advice take it seriously don't get lax but take it seriously folks and I, i'll see you soon god bless goodbye